This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bullfinch's Mythology, The Age of Fable, by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 37. Eastern Mythology, Zoroaster, Hindu Mythology, Castes, Buddha, The Grand Lama, Prester John. Zoroaster. Our knowledge of the religion of the ancient Persians is principally derived from the Zendavesta, or sacred books of that people. Zoroaster was the founder of their religion, or rather the reformer of the religion which preceded him. The time when he lived is doubtful, but it is certain that his system became the dominant religion of Western Asia from the time of Cyrus, 550 B.C., to the conquest of Persia by Alexander the Great. Under the Macedonian monarchy the doctrines of Zoroaster appear to have been considerably corrupted by the introduction of foreign opinions, but they afterwards recovered their ascendancy. Zoroaster taught the existence of a supreme being, who created two other misty beings, and imparted to them as much of his own nature as seemed good to him. Of these, Ormzud, called by the Greeks Oromastides, remained faithful to his creator, and was regarded as the source of all good, while Arihman, Aramines, rebelled, and became the author of all evil upon the earth. Ormuzd created man and supplied him with all the materials of happiness, but Araman marred this happiness by introducing evil into the world, and creating savage beasts and poisonous reptiles and plants. In consequence of this, evil and good are now mingled together in every part of the world, and the followers of good and evil, the adherents of Ormuzd and Araman, carry on incessant war. But this state of things will not last for ever. The time will come when the adherents of Ormuzd shall everywhere be victorious, and Araman and his followers be consigned to darkness for ever. The religious rites of the ancient Persians were exceedingly simple. They used neither temples, altars, nor statues, and performed their sacrifices on the tops of mountains. They adored fire, light, and sun as the emblems of Ormuzd, the source of all light and purity, but did not regard them as independent deities. The religious rites and ceremonies were regulated by the priests, who were called magi. The learning of the magi was connected with astrology and enchantment, in which they were so celebrated that their name was applied to all orders of magicians and enchanters. Wordsworth thus alludes to the worship of the Persians. The Persian, zealous to reject altar and image, and the inclusive walls and roofs of temples built by human hands, the loftiest heights ascending from their tops, with myrtle-wreathed tiara on his brows, presented sacrifice to moon and stars, and to the winds and mother elements, and the whole circle of heavens, for him a sensitive existence and a god. Excursion, Book 4. In Child Herald, Byron speaks thus of the Persian worship. Not vainly did the early Persian make his altar the high places, and the peak of earth o'er gazing mountains, and thus take a fit and unwalled temple, there to seek the spirit in whose honor shrines are weak, upreared of human hands, Come and compare columns and idol dwellings, Goth or Greek, with nature's realms of worship, earth and air, nor fix on fond abodes to circumscribe thy prayer. 3.91. The religion of Zoroaster continued to flourish even after the introduction of Christianity, and in the third century was the dominant faith of the East, till the rise of the Mohammedan power and the conquest of Persia by the Arabs in the seventh century, who compelled the greater number of the Persians to renounce their ancient faith. Those who refused to abandon the religion of their ancestors fled to the deserts of Kerman and to Hindustan, 
where they still exist under the name of Parsees, a name derived from Pars, the ancient name of Persia. The Arabs call them Gubers, from an Arabic word signifying unbelievers. At Bombay, the Parsees are at this day a very active, intelligent, and wealthy class. For purity of life, honesty, and conciliatory manners, they are favorably distinguished. They have numerous temples to fire, which they adore as the symbol of the divinity. The Persian religion makes the subject of the finest tale in Moore's La Roque, the fire-worshippers. The Guber chief says, Yes, I am of that impious race, those slaves of fire, that morn and even hail their creator's dwelling-place among the living lights of heaven. Yes, I am of that outcast crew, to Iran and to vengeance true, who curse the hour your Arabs came to desecrate our shines of flame, and swear before God's burning eye to break our country's chains or die. Hindu Mythology The religion of the Hindus is professedly founded on the Vedas. To these books of their scripture they attach the greatest sanctity, and state that Brahma himself composed them at the creation. But the present arrangement of the Vedas is attributed to the sage Vyasa about five thousand years ago. The Vedas undoubtedly teach the belief of one supreme God. The name of this deity is Brahma. His attributes are represented by the three personified powers of creation, preservation, and destruction, which, under the respective names of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, form the Trimurti, or triad, of principal Hindu gods. Of the inferior gods, the most important are Indra, the god of heaven, of thunder, lightning, storm, and rain, Agni, the god of fire, Yama, the god of the infernal regions, Surya, the god of the sun. Brahma is the creator of the universe, and the source from which all the individual deities have sprung, and into which all will ultimately be absorbed. As milk changes to curd, and water to ice, so is Brahma variously transformed and diversified, without aid of exterior means of any sort. The human soul, according to the Vedas, is a portion of the supreme ruler, as a spark is of the fire. Vishnu Vishnu occupies the second place in the triad of the Hindus, and is the personification of the preserving principle. To protect the world in various epochs of danger, Vishnu descended to the earth in different incarnations, or bodily forms, which descents are called avatars. They are very numerous, but ten are more particularly specified. The first avatar was Matsya, the fish, under which form Vishnu preserved Manu, the ancestor of the human race, during a universal deluge. The second avatar was in the form of a tortoise, which form he assumed to support the earth, when the gods were turning the sea for the beverage of immortality, Amrita. We may omit the other avatars, which were of the same general character, that is, interpositions to protect the right or to punish wrongdoers, and come to the ninth, which is the most celebrated of the avatars of Vishnu, in which he appeared in the human form of Krishna, an invincible warrior, who by his exploits relieved the earth from the tyrants who oppressed it. Buddha is by the followers of the Brahmanical religion regarded as a delusive incarnation of Vishnu, assumed by him in order to induce the Asuras, opponents of the god, to abandon the sacred ordinances of the Vedas, by which means they lost their strength and supremacy. Kalki is the name of the tenth avatar, in which Vishnu will appear at the end of the present age of the world to destroy all vice and wickedness, and to restore mankind to virtue and purity. Shiva Shiva is the third person of the Hindu triad. He is the personification of the destroying principle. 
though the third name he is in respect to the number of his worshippers, and in the extension of his worship, before either of the others. In the Puranas, the scriptures of the modern Hindu religion, no allusion is made to the original power of this god as a destroyer, that power not being to be called into exercise till after the expiration of twelve millions of years, or when the universe will come to an end, and Mahadeva, another name for Shiva, is rather the representative of regeneration than of destruction. The worshippers of Vishnu and Shiva form two sects, each of which proclaims the superiority of its favorite deity, denying the claims of the other, and Brahma, the creator, having finished his work, seems to be regarded as no longer active, and has now only one temple in India, while Mahaveda and Vishnu have many. The worshippers of Vishnu are generally distinguished by a greater tenderness for life, and consequent abstinence from animal food, and a worship less cruel than that of the followers of Shiva. Juggernaut whether the worshippers of Juggernaut are to be reckoned among the followers of Vishnu or Shiva, our authorities differ. The temple stands near the shore, about three hundred miles southwest of Calcutta. The idol is a carved block of wood, with a hideous face, painted black, and a distended, blood-red mouth. On festival days the throne of the image is placed on a tower sixty feet high, moving on wheels. Six long ropes are attached to the tower, by which the people draw it along. The priests and their attendants stand round the throne on the tower, and occasionally turn to the worshippers with songs and gestures. While the tower moves along, numbers of the devout worshippers throw themselves on the ground, in order to be crushed by the wheels, and the multitude shout in approbation of the act, as a pleasing sacrifice to the idol. Every year, particularly at two great festivals in March and July, pilgrims flock in crowds to the temple. Not less than seventy or eighty thousand people are said to visit the place on these occasions, when all castes eat together. Castes The division of the Hindus into classes or castes, with fixed occupations, existed from the earliest times. It is supposed by some to have been founded upon conquest, the first three castes being composed of a foreign race, who subdued the natives of the country and reduced them to an inferior caste. Others trace it to the fondness of perpetuating by descent from father to son certain offices or occupations. The Hindu tradition gives the following account of the origin of the various castes. At the creation, Brahma resolved to give the earth inhabitants who should be direct emanations from his own body. Accordingly, from his mouth came forth the eldest-born, Brahma, the priest, to whom he confided the four Vedas. From his right arm issued Shatirya, the warrior, and from his left the warrior's wife. His thighs produced Vyasyas, male and female, agriculturalists and traders, and lastly, from his feet sprang Sudras, mechanics and laborers. The four sons of Brahma, so significantly brought into the world, became the fathers of the human race, and heads of their respective castes. They were commanded to regard the four Vedas as containing all the rules of their faith, and all that was necessary to guide them in their religious ceremonies. They were also commanded to take rank in the order of their birth, the Brahmins uppermost, as having sprung from the head of Brahma. A strong line of demarcation is drawn between the first three castes and the Sudras. The former are allowed to receive instruction from the Vedas, which is not permitted to the Sudras. The Brahmins possessed the privilege of teaching the Vedas, and were in former times in exclusive possession of all knowledge. Though the sovereign of the country was chosen from the Satriya class, also called Rajputs, the Brahmins possessed the real power, and were the royal counsellors, the judges, and magistrates of the country, 
their persons and property were invaluable, and though they committed the greatest crimes, they could only be banished from the kingdom. They were to be treated by sovereigns with the greatest respect, for a Brahma, whether learned or ignorant, is a powerful divinity. When the Brahman arrives at years of maturity, it becomes his duty to marry. He ought to be supported by the contributions of the rich, and not to be obliged to gain his subsistence by any laborious or productive occupation. But as all the Brahmins could not be maintained by the working classes of the community, it was found necessary to allow them to engage in productive employments. We need say little of the two intermediate classes, whose rank and privileges may be readily inferred from their occupations. The Sudras, or fourth class, are bound to be servile attendants on the higher classes, especially the Brahmins, but they may follow mechanical occupations and practical arts, as painting and writing, or become traders or husbandmen. Consequently, they sometimes grow rich, and it will also sometimes happen that Brahmins become poor. That fact works its usual consequence, and rich sudras sometimes employ poor Brahmins in menial occupations. There is another class lower even than the sudras, for it is not one of the original pure classes, but springs from an unauthorized union of individuals of different castes. These are the pariahs, who are employed in the lowest services and treated with the utmost severity. They are compelled to do what no one else can do without pollution. They are not only considered unclean themselves, but they render unclean everything they touch. They are deprived of all civil rights, and stigmatized by particular laws regulating their mode of life, their houses, and their furniture. They are not allowed to visit the pagodas or temples of the other castes, but have their own pagodas and religious exercises. They are not suffered to enter the houses of the other castes. If it is done incautiously or from necessity, the place must be purified by religious ceremonies. They must not appear at public markets, and are confined to the use of particular wells, which they are obliged to surround with bones of animals, to warn others against using them. They dwell in miserable hovels, distant from cities and villages, and are under no restrictions in regard to food, which last is not a privilege, but a mark of ignominy, as if they were so degraded that nothing could pollute them. The three higher castes are prohibited entirely the use of flesh. The fourth is allowed to use all kinds except beef, but only the lowest case is allowed every kind of food without restriction. Buddha Buddha, whom the Vedas represent as a delusive incarnation of Vishnu, is said by his followers to have been a mortal sage, whose name was Gautama, called also by the complementary epithets of Sakyashina, the lion, and Buddha, the sage. By a comparison of the various epochs assigned to his birth, it is inferred that he lived about one thousand years before Christ. He was the son of a king, and when in conformity to the usage of the country he was, a few days after his birth, presented before the altar of a deity, the image is said to have inclined its head as a presage of the future greatness of the new-born prophet. The child soon developed faculties of the first order, and became equally distinguished by the uncommon beauty of his person. No sooner had he grown to years of maturity than he began to reflect deeply on the depravity and misery of mankind, and he conceived the idea of retiring from society, and devoting himself to meditation. His father in vain opposed this design. Buddha escaped the vigilance of his guards, and having found a secure retreat, lived for six years undisturbed in his devout contemplations. At the expiration of that period he came forward at Benares as a religious teacher. At first some who heard him doubted of the soundness of his mind, but his doctrines soon gained credit, and were propagated so rapidly that Buddha himself lived to see them spread all over India. 
He died at the age of eighty years. The Buddhists reject entirely the authority of the Vedas and the religious observances prescribed in them and kept by the Hindus. They also reject the distinction of castes and prohibit all bloody sacrifices and allow animal food. Their priests are chosen from all classes. They are expected to procure their maintenance by perambulation and begging, and among other things it is their duty to endeavor to turn to some use things thrown aside as useless by others, and to discover the medicinal power of plants. But in Ceylon three orders of priests are recognized. Those of the highest order are usually men of high birth and learning, and are supported at the principal temples, most of which have been richly endowed by the former monarchs of the country. For several centuries after the appearance of Buddha, his sect seems to have been tolerated by the Brahmins, and Buddhism appears to have penetrated the peninsula of Hindustan in every direction, and to have been carried to Ceylon and to the eastern peninsula. But afterwards it had to endure in India a long-continued persecution, which ultimately had the effect of entirely abolishing it in the country where it had originated, but to scatter it widely over adjacent countries. Buddhism appears to have been introduced into China about the year 65 of our era. From China it was subsequently extended to Korea, Japan, and Java. THE GRAND LAMA It is a doctrine alike of the Brahminical Hindus and of the Buddhist sect that the confinement of the human soul, an emanation of the divine spirit in a human body is a state of misery, and the consequences of frailties and sins committed during former existences. But they hold that some individuals have appeared on this earth from time to time, not under the necessity of terrestrial existence, but who voluntarily descended to the earth to promote the welfare of mankind. These individuals have gradually assumed the character of reappearances of Buddha himself, in which capacity the line is continued till the present day, in the several lamas of Tibet, China, and other countries where Buddhism prevails. In consequence of the victories of Genghis Khan and his successors, the lama residing in Tibet was raised to the dignity of chief pontiff of the sect. A separate province was assigned to him as his own territory, and besides his spiritual dignity he became to a limited extent a temporal monarch. He is styled the Dalai Lama. The first Christian missionaries who proceeded to Tibet were surprised to find, there, in the heart of Asia, a pontifical court and several other ecclesiastical institutions resembling those of the Roman Catholic Church. They found convents for priests and nuns, also processions and forms of religious worship, attended with much pomp and splendor, and many were induced by these similarities to consider Lamaism as a sort of degenerated Christianity. It is not improbable that the Lamas derived some of these practices from the Nestorian Christians, who were settled in Tartary when Buddhism was introduced into Tibet. Prester John An early account, communicated probably by travelling merchants, of a Lama or spiritual chief among the Tartars, seems to have occasioned in Europe the report of a presbyter or Prester John, a Christian pontiff resident in Upper Asia. The Pope sent a mission in search of him, as did also Louis the Ninth of France, some years later, but both missions were unsuccessful, though the small communities of Nestorian Christians, which they did find, served to keep up the belief in Europe that such a personage did exist somewhere in the East. At last, in the fifteenth century, a Portuguese traveller, Pedro Covillam, happening to hear that there was a Christian prince in the country of the Abyssines, Abyssinia, not far from the Red Sea, concluded that this must be the true Prester John. He accordingly went thither, and penetrated to the court of the king, whom he calls Negus. 
Milton alludes to him in Paradise Lost, Book Eleven, where describing Adam's vision of his descendants in their various nations and cities, scattered over the face of the earth, he says, Nor did his eyes not ken the empire of Negus to his utmost port, Ercoco, and the less maritime kings, Mombaza and Quilo and Melind. End of section 37